Welcome to the podcast for bravetestimony.com. I'm going to talk about welcoming, a welcoming to manhood. So if you've never been welcomed to manhood uh, tonight, I want to welcome you to manhood. Uh, so women typically, when they go through all of their stuff as a woman, when their body changes and puberty hits, they go through their cycle and they, they, they have their first period. And there's this kind of camaraderie in women where they take the young girl aside and there's this, this understanding that now you're a woman. Uh, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's never really a thing like now you're a man. Like you don't, you know, in the, in the world, there's all kinds of man lessons and manhood lessons and, and, and things you have to pass in order to be a, a man. You're not cool. You're not a man unless you do this. There's so many like ideas of what manhood really is. And depending on what you're following in society at this point, uh, manhood can actually even be, be discouraged to be, because no, because we have this idea of toxic masculinity. What we perceive the negative traits of masculinity into this kind of whole picture of what a man is rather than looking for the positive attributes of what a man is. So I'm going to propose a few ideas um, of what I think we get from scripture about what a man is. I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus was a man. Um, there's some kind of weird, um, you know, we can get into the whole, like with the fact that the scripture was written in such a way that it uses masculinity as a, as a context for which to speak to all people. It says, you know, instead of saying they, it'll, it'll use the word men. Men is the typical term for a group of people. Uh, and often it seems as if, the writers are highlighting men, not highlighting women. Uh, and that's a misunderstanding of scripture at its, at its lowest level anyway. There's other things going on as well. Um, but I want to just say, before we get into uh, what a man is based on scripture and what we see in Jesus' life, I want to just say, you know, it was really God's plan to integrate both sexes. It's, you know, the, the idea that men and women are equal is really a God idea. It's not a man idea. Um, you know, equality and equity are two different things. And I don't want to get into a big political diatribe about the differences between uh, equality and equity. But I will say this, that we are very different, but we have equal value. And that's a very important thing to be able to distinguish from. So before we get into why Jesus is a man, we must be very careful not to distinguish or devalue what a woman is either. That's not to devalue things. It's just a statement about, you know, what, what a man's role is. And, you know, Paul gets misquoted so many times as saying, you know, women, you know, subject yourselves to your husband, husbands, you know, you're the ruler of the house, the head of the home. There's weird language in there. So, I'm not going to get into a big theological lesson about that. I think Paul is misquoted and misunderstood. I think, I think the Bible is often misquoted and misunderstood, but know this today. And we, you know, hopefully at some point we'll get to this, but you need to know that equality was God's, God's idea. And it was manifested in the fact that he poured his spirit out on all flesh. In fact, it was the disciples and the women and the children and, and the slaves and the free in the upper room. It wasn't just the disciples. People tend to think it was just the disciples. What do we see in Jesus? And what does he call us to as men? It's, I mean, obviously he's calling all, but what, is it, what does it say about a man? And it talks about 
a man, Paul talks about a man covering a weaker vessel. And often we assume that means a less valuable vessel, but that's not what he's talking about, about at all. Our primary role is to be the defender of the weak. Um, and the weak means literally they can't lift or do the kinds of things we can do. And in lots of cultures, men have, you know, in African culture, for example, the woman will carry big things on their heads while the man walks behind with a stick. And they used to look at that as some kind of chauvinistic thing. But there's real threats of lion attacks. And so they often will have the man, with that stick is not a stick, it's actually a weapon. And he carries the weapon so he can defend the woman. Um, and of course, society has skewed that. And, and you can, of course, see how over time there became an entitlement in men where they don't carry anything too. So there are extremes to everything. But genuinely, if you put your wife and you in a ring to fight it out, or if there's a burglar that shows up, it's kind of obvious, you know, depending on your relationship with your wife. Uh, I don't, I'm not married to Ronda Rousey. And I'm pretty sure if I was, she would school me pretty hard. I would not be able to defend her. She'd defend me in a heartbeat. So there's a joke in there for sure. Uh, but generally speaking, that is a type and shadow of our calling actually is to defend the weak. We were designed to fight injustice. In fact, a man that doesn't have injustice to fight is often led to self-fulfillment. What I mean by that is one of the reasons we love sports is because we, we don't have anything to fight. So watching somebody battle and have competition, in a, even in a playful way, excites us. Like our hormones were designed to fight, to overcome, and to win, and to dominate. And so sometimes when we don't have a purpose for that fight mechanism that's built into us and someone to defend, we end up self-medicating and, and, and self-deprecating because we're actually fighting ourselves. I've said that before. When you have nothing to fight, no purpose to fight, you end up fighting yourself when you do a lot of inward fighting and you become convoluted on the inside and becomes a bit of a struggle um the the ultimate goal of fighting injustice is actually to destroy the works of darkness you were designed to destroy the works of darkness and deceit that's literally your decision that your, your your role in the relationship role in the world um let's look at a couple other ideas here uh, god empowered us to prov to provide access opportunities and resources to the community, to the people around us. We actually are God-empowered to create access to heaven, to create opportunities to, to improve and to, to meet God and to meet others, and to create resources for the community around us, not just finances, but lots of different resources. Um, we were supposed to be the champions of hope, or at least the, the backstop for faith. And that might sound like a weird statement, but it requires a lot of theological dancing. But I will say this, you know, there's something kind of strange about the stubbornness of a man's faith. When a man makes a decision, often it can be a rock hard decision and sometimes the wrong one, but it can be immovable. And there's something kind of built into a man that when they make a final decision, it actually is hard to shift somebody emotionally. A man doesn't really get shifted emotionally. And you can look at the way that the, the brain is wired and, and, you know, they say that women typically will have a, a, a table brain and men have a compartment brain. And, and, and what they're saying there is that we're, we're able to isolate and distinguish a problem really for itself, uh, unconnected to all the other issues. Now, that's a major problem in most leadership situations, actually. So I will say this. This is a kind of a funny statement, but I think women make better leaders overall in society because most people in society are S's, which is a steadfast personality. 
So women typically will have this thing where if you make a bad decision, it's going to affect these 10 things and they're actually better. You know, when it comes to things like providing for the family and making sure like that, there's a whole, there's a whole thing where women actually make better leaders when it comes to taking care of the community. But when it comes time for war or defending the weak, we're able to like isolate and trap the people in the engine room of the submarine. There's something weird about men where we can compartmentalize and evaluate and destroy all the things that make no, like what's myopia. We have high levels of myopia where we, we can separate what's important in a single moment and make difficult choices without feeling the emotional consequences till afterwards. Now, I don't know why we're wired that way. And obviously there's extremes to the, this, the, this outliers to the norm. So we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the general way we're wired and the way we think. Uh, even if you're um, a passive person, uh, if somebody invaded your house, you will suddenly become myoptic and change the way you are interacting with your world around you and you'll make very, very strong decisions. And so in the theology of that, you know, there's lots of ways of emotion and spirituality and lots of theologies that come in and out. But there's something kind of fundamental in a family when a father decides that we are doing this and the father creates a standard and a banner for what God looks like in the family and how that creates a steadfastness in the pursuit of God in a family. Um, the other thing is that we, this is a general thing for all Christians, of course, is that our goal is to bring heaven's strength to earth. And, you know, it's a task more than a, than a hopeful message until you work through all the theology of that. But the ultimate working out of that, of course, is to, is to find more ways for God God's presence, God's kingdom, God's way of reigning and thinking to be present on earth and to consistently bring people back to a place, especially people in your environment, including yourself, into a God-centered message. And I've said this before, I don't think you get better without God. The other thing is, and this is the part that we don't understand about, when we have this thing about submitting, we think it's a one-way submission sometimes, and there's a whole misogyny around that, and, and all kinds of churches have got themselves into trouble. But actually, it talks about laying your life down for your wife and to lead like Jesus led, like a servant leader. Right? Leaders who are powerful and have influence don't need position. They don't need a title. Like if someone says, well, you're the head of the home, you should make all the decisions. I don't even need that title to be the head of the home. I'm the head of the home by proxy of the way I serve or the way I, the way I influence my environment, that I keep calling them back to a standard. And I, I hold... I mean, at least I've tried to. I'm a little more emotional than Chris, and I'm a bit more of an outlier, excuse me. But, but, but the goal is to be able to create a fundamental like, path or a baseline to pull everybody back into when things go all over the world, all over the, all over the map. And so how do we know that this is the way? The, how did Jesus lead? If, Jesus, if the model is to lead through servant leadership, we read in John 17 that Jesus said, these people that you gave me, I have, I have literally, I've taken your name, the name of my father, and I've made your name, I've let them experience your name. So think about this in your context of your own family or even in your own life. You go, okay, I'm not going to take on my own identity. Okay, I'll put that aside. I'm going to hope against hope. I'm going to choose to believe what God said I am, just like we worshiped in the beginning. And when we decide to take on the identity of our father, 
we take on the name and the renown and the reputation of our father, not our own reputation, but his reputation. Then we make that reputation manifest in our own world. This is what Jesus did. He did, he did what the father said, he did what the father was doing, said what the father was saying, went where the father went in order to make his name known amongst the community. And he said, if you see me, you see the father. There's a profound statement here about this laid down lover that rep, he loved us so well and demonstrated what, a, what the father looked like. He took, he took his reputation, which was, and remember he gave up his glory in heaven, came to earth, set aside the glory of Godhood, and then took the glory that God gave him, which was only God's name. Like the Hebrews grew up uh, under this idea that they were the promised people and they had an idea of God. So he took their idea of God that God had created on the earth, and then he added his experience, like his um, reputation, his renown to God's name and increased God's name. So in John 17, he says, he says he wants to be returned to the former glory. So what does that mean? I'm going to try not to get super theological. I know I already have kind of pushed into that a bit. But the idea is this. When your father's name, let's say in my case, it's Morris, he has a reputation. And everybody around the neighborhood knows who he is. And he's created a good name for himself, let's say, or a bad name. And you, maybe in some cases you can think of your childhood and maybe your father created a bad name. Everyone kind of goes, well, Morris means this. My role is to take my father's name and in his name, so in his good name, let's say, I then begin to add more goodness to his name. Now I make the name of Morris bigger than it was when I first showed up. And when we charge our children when they turn 21, my son turned 21 a little while ago, and my daughter and my, my next son's going to turn 21. In South Africa, there's this big culture of 21 means you become a man and there's a transition uh, or you become an adult. And there's a big transition from being a child to becoming an adult. And we welcome adults across the threshold. And one of the things we charge them with is, here's our reputation in our name. Here's our reputation. We, we, you know what it means to be a Morris. And then we, we ask them to say what it means. And then they say something like, being a Morris means blah, blah, blah. And, and then we say, now take that and do something with it. You're charged as an adult not to come under some kind of um, controlling tyranny, but to come into a place where you're now responsible to increase the glory in the name that we've given you. So when, it, when we say welcome to manhood, we're actually saying if manhood is represented in the servanthood of Christ and Christ represents his father and we're representing Christ, that's how Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's how you can say to your children, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, I, I've, I've got this name I'm working on. I'm trying to increase the Morris name. I'm trying to increase God's name. And I'm telling you, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm telling you, follow me. In fact, my dad several years ago was kind of amazing. He came, he had seen how it grown. And he said, you know, you've gone way past where I've raised you. And he said, I'm going to pass my mantle onto you. And he prayed for me to pass his mantle. On. That's a pretty big deal. And then he came to my, 20, my kid's 21st birthday and they began to bless my son and called him up and called him across the threshold. He crossed over and he took on the responsibility of being a man. So while I transition here for a second, I want you just to think about, this is a practical side. Doug told me to get more practical. So here you go. There's a practical example for you. So I want you to think about just for a second, your name, the reputation you grew up with, 
the name that was left for you, the good and the bad, and then compare that to the name God gave you, or even compare that to God himself. And understand that God is calling you into manhood, not your father. You're going to surpass your father, hopefully. That's the goal, right? If sons keep surpassing their father, it'll be glory to gl glory unto glory unto glory. Reputation, renown unto reputation, renown. What we're saying right now is like, imagine God calling you into his name. So I want you to imagine in the beginning of your life, like at the very beginning on the left-hand side, you kind of are in that innocent stage. You're born into the world. You know very little about everything. You're immature. You're vulnerable. You're consuming everything around you. You're consuming knowledge. You're consuming resources. You actually add nothing to the world. All you do is get a take. You're a taker. You're powerless. You can't do anything for yourself. But over time, as you can see by the graph, and again, this is all in idealism, right? Over time, hopefully, your innocence, innocence drops off a little bit. Now, of course, in the modern age, I think innocence is actually dropping off sooner than mm -hmm. this. It's actually sad to me to see how porn has influenced our, our, our innocence levels. And that concerns me deeply, actually. Uh, but that's not a subject for today. I need to stay on task. Um, and then I want to point your attention to this other side of the, the curve. What happens is, as you become aware of the world, and as you become, as your innocence gets robbed from you, and as you start to have negative experiences and positive ones, your, your insecurity starts to rise. Now, I've met so many young men who are fully insecure because of how they got beat up in life. Life just beats the crap out of you. Now, I don't know where this is for you, where you're at the highest of your insecurity. I would, I would beg to differ this, probably not 20. I'd beg to differ that your highest insecurity is probably in middle school, actually, or something like that. Um, but you can imagine that as you're in proportion to the amount of vulnerability you lose and the more guarded you become and the more you, you become powerless and the more you lose your innocence, the more insecurity is going to show up in your life. Now, idealistically, this is going to happen. And I'm going to show you that real quick. What happens is you also at the same time have this incredible opportunity called responsibility. Now, I would say insecurity is highest in the proportion where your responsibility hasn't kicked in yet. But what happens is as you take on responsibility, you actually start to become a contributor. The purple line, think of the purple line, purple line is a, an opportunity to become a contributor. Now in the very beginning, you're contributing very little. If you're Kim Kardashian, you're over here right now and you're contributing zero to the world, right? That's, that's a joke. <laughs> I don't know if that helped the internet, but, um, but, but hopefully at this point in life, if you're 20 something, you're contributing a little bit to the world. And then you have babies and babies have babies and you eventually become a grandfather. And then you, at the very end, it actually is a crazy curve because it goes up because your generation after generation of inheritance starts to contribute quite largely and you actually inherit their contribution to the world. But your responsibility also drops off until you die. So the problem right here is this big gap of insecurity where most people fall apart. And they try to go back to a place of innocence, but they can't because you can't unknow what you already know. And you can't, but you, what you can do is you can adopt responsibility as an opportunity to displace insecurity. I, want, I wanted to say that if you, if you suffer from high levels of anxiety, you need to adopt small levels of responsibility with what you can bear. Because as you adopt responsibility, for your reputation, for your renown, for your value in society, for your ability to contribute, you will start to destroy insecurity in your life.
you will start to see the feedback of contribution happening and you'll start to feel the value of your contribution and it will directly oppose your insecurity and you'll become more and more secure. Now I hope that you become super secure and you don't, this doesn't taper off so slowly, but it's true to be said, I've, I've said this before, where insecurity that's unchecked makes space for tyranny. What does that mean? If you don't check your insecurity with responsibility, you leave place for people to take advantage of you and to subdue you. So look, if there's a, like when you're innocent, everybody's going to protect the innocent. Have you thought about this? No one's going to, like if a baby gets hurt, people get angry. Have you ever noticed that? But if a 20 year old does something stupid, we're all like, um, yep. Yeah. So, so there's a difference between like when you're innocent, everybody loves you and protects you. And then when you're 20, people are like, you should know better. And you're like, I don't know better. I don't even know how to have good sex. I don't even have to good relationships. I'm, I'm still struggling to even get out of bed in the morning. And I would propose to you that that gap right there, this gap that you see right here, is where you get taken the most advantage of and you have the least ability to actually destroy evil. But as you dominate the world around you on this purple curve, as you begin to take authority over your life, you will start to slowly displace this as you see, displace your insecurity, as you start to contribute more to the world and you see your feedback. So... I've looped around this whole idea that tyranny thrives in the middle of insecurity. And here's the part that I want to leave you with for a minute. That thing that you imagined, the negative name you were given as a child, or whatever someone said to you as, a, as maybe you got some bad fathering lessons or man lessons, I will say this a little bit. I'm a little tired of asking my past for permission to be awesome today. I'm a little tired of that. Think about that for just a minute. Think, just think about it for a minute. I spend time with a lot of men a lot of times, and most of the time, all I hear is the regret of missed childhood opportunities. And they're compensating all the time for the, the loss of innocence and the loss of childhood dreams. For, for example, let's say you're, you wanted to play basketball as a kid, but you kept getting made fun of, right? Then as an adult, you're trying to reclaim your... If coach had only put me in, you know, that last quarter, if coach had only put me in, I wouldn't have lost my girlfriend. I wouldn't have been made fun of. I, and then you've got this whole mentality of coaches never put me in. I can't trust fathers. And so you're spending your whole life trying to compensate for the pain of the past, not realizing that if you embrace responsibility right now, you take on small responsibility, you will destroy the pain of the past. You know, for children, for young boys, I can watch this when you watch the curve of my, my sons growing up and even my own life. Once they start, like there's a difference between a little baby. A baby needs a reason to be responsible for greatness. Have you ever noticed that? You got to kind of give a young kid a reason to be responsible. You, they got to be responsible for a pet, as an example, or they got to be responsible for babysitting their brother or whatever. Um, but if you increase that responsibility, they become stronger as a human being. If you take away their responsibility, like a lot of parents are doing now with kids, where they give them no responsibility, mm. which means they have no contribution and they don't feel any value of self. That's a big deal, by the way. It's another subject for another time. But if you give kids a reason to be responsible, they will, they will find their greatness. Now, I'm going to say this the opposite way. 
for men, responsibility is reason enough to discover their greatness. So I'm welcoming you to manhood today. The goal right here is to go, I welcome you across the threshold with two provisors. One is know what you're being welcomed into. You're being welcomed into a lifestyle of increasing the name and reputation that God gave you. Not the name and reputation your father gave you or, or your brothers, your older brothers gave you. The name and reputation your father gave you. So you have to know your identity, which again is another subject. And number two, I'm, I'm walking across the threshold only at the level of responsibility you're willing to, you're willing to take on. Because once you start to value responsibility, you will destroy tyranny in your life. It will destroy victimhood. It will destroy people taking advantage of you. Because responsibility will call to you, call you to a level where you become powerful and free because you become responsible for your life. And I'm telling you, once you, once you take dominion of your life back, you'll begin to take dominion of your world back. And once you take dominion of your world back, you will become the very thing God called you to be, which is the defender of the weak. So that's the message for tonight. I want to encourage you to become the defender of the weak, to, de to destroy the works of darkness, to be the champion of hope, and to be the one that increases the name and reputation of our king. And you can only do that if you embrace responsibility.